Dr. Rita Severis is the co-founder and executive director of the Costas and Rita Severis Foundation, a nonprofit organization for the promotion of Cypriot culture by promoting research and scholarship in Cyprus. Additionally, the foundation opened the Center of Visual Arts and Research in Nicosia, which Rita serves as the executive director. Now, the CVAAR currently hosts thousands of works of art, textiles, and books on the history, art, and culture of Cyprus. Rita herself completed a PhD in art history and currently serves as the Honorary Consul of Canada and Cyprus since 2010 and has most recently received the Order of the Star of Italy from Italian Ambassador to Cyprus. Uh, And today I'm so privileged to have her with us to discuss a publication of hers called Traveling Artists Through Cyprus. So Rita, thank you so much for joining us today in the podcast. Very happy to be here. You know, that's kind of close to home, the fact that you are the Honorary Consul of Canada. Do you mind telling me how that happened? Um, I think it was by accident. (laughs) I got a phone call one day from uh, the then uh, Ambassador of Canada to Cyprus, and she asked me if I was willing to act as their Honorary Consul. I thought about it a bit, and I thought, yes, why not? Hmm. Okay. And... We started from there. It's been a wonderful experience. It's been wonderful 12 years and carrying on. Learned a lot, met excellent people, wonderful people. Uh, got to know what Canada is all about and the Canadians. So is this a, is this a position that expires, so to speak? Or is it, um, is it something... It's a, usually a three-year contract, which is renewed every three years. Okay, it is renewed yeah. every three years. It seems like you have a lot on your plate. I mean, the fact that you're you're the honorary consul, you're also uh, executive director for the Center of Visual Arts and Research and the foundation. I'm, I'm used to this, Andres. It's always <laughs> been like that in my life. You know, yeah. When I was working with Sotheby's, I, w- I had my own antique shop. I, I was... Uh, still interested in cultural uh, events in Cyprus and uh, organizing those as well. I was raising three kids. Well, you know, I'm used to this. Uh, My husband says I perform when I'm under pressure. I perform best when I'm under pressure. The the actual foundation, the Gostas and Rita Severus Foundation, can you tell us a little bit about it and what its function is? Well, uh, it was established in 1999 with two aims. The idea was to promote uh, Cypriot culture locally and abroad and to promote peace and reconciliation uh, amongst the communities of Cyprus and especially between the Greek and Turkish community. Uh, Towards this reason, we have Turkish Cypriots on our board and we work closely with Turkish Cypriot NGOs. I must say we're the one and only by Communal Museum in Cyprus. Wonderful. And now you're referring to the Center of Visual Arts and Research. Yes, which is really the home of the Costas and Rita Severis Foundation. Costas and Rita Severis Foundation is basically the board that runs the CVAR. Right. right. And I, I've, I've spent some time on the CVAR website, and there's just like a lot of like wonderful stuff that's on there. Uh, I noticed a lot of events, a lot of uh, that I hinted to earlier in the, in the intro, uh, such as the uh, one on the sounds of Cyprus, which is really interesting to me. I have a background in uh, traditional Cypriot folkloric dance. Yeah. I used to, I used to teach it here in Canada, 
you know, that kind of kind of drew me a little bit. And, you know, it's a shame I wasn't able to be in Cyprus when it was we, um, hosted. We, but... we, we do a lot of events and we generally have events within the museum. Yeah. We go out in the streets because we believe that the museum should approach the people, should go down to the streets, down and out into the streets and get closer to the people and bring them up into the museum. We don't yeah. want to sort of be on our escalated venue you know we right. we want to be part of of the people so we did have quite a lot of musical events in the streets like opera in the streets greek and turkish cypriot singing opera in the streets um dancing in the streets mm-hmm. all the dances from the 19th uh, end of the 19th century to today and also for three years uh ermu 1900 Ermu was the most commercial street in Nicosia, which is now the Green Line, the buffer zone. And we recreated Ermu Street and had all the old craftsmen, all the old sellers, and of course, dancing and music of the period. It's, an, it's incredible. It, it really is incredible. And the fact that you also host thousands, if I'm not mistaken, textiles and and books and and artwork that relates to Cyprus. Yes, uh, yes how, we do. Yes. Now, how, how does it work? Is it, it's not really a library. So how would that work? How do, how do oh, it is a library as well. There, there is the museum, which is four floors, and mm-hmm. it exhibits the uh, paintings by traveling artists to Cyprus through the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. And also um, um, uh, memorabilia, lots and lots of memorabilia, and lots of costumes and textiles. But parallel to that, there is a four-floor library, which we call a research center, with thousands of books on travel, history, and um, uh, art of Cyprus, uh, with a huge archive, and perhaps the largest collection of old photographs of Cyprus, starting from the mid-19th century till the 1970s, perhaps over 50,000, which are there. Everything is digitized and everything is um, open to whoever is interested to come and study, read, do research, do anything they want. And we do have a lot of researchers and a lot of people that come and read our books. That's amazing. You know, the first time I came across your book, uh, Traveling Artists in Cyprus, I, I was immediately drawn to it because you sort of present the quote-unquote modern history of Cyprus, again, from the 18th to the 20th century, but through the lens of art. And it's it's a really unique way of presenting Cyprus's history, again, using art as a lens to interpret the different perspectives and viewpoints on on Cyprus, and which we're yeah. going to talk about uh, a lot today. And I know it's it's a little bit too late to congratulate you on the book. <laughs> it's a couple <laughs> of years too late. Long, long ago. <laughs> the book was done long, long ago. In fact, I, I want to redo it now. Yeah. Because in the meantime, I've discovered a lot more paintings and a lot more artists. So uh, yeah. it, it has to be redone. But it's a matter of time, you know, to find the time to do this sort of thing. Uh, once upon a time, I was writing, reading, researching, writing. Now I'm running a museum. Yeah, I know, I <laughs> <And> understand. It. <laughs> I chose this perspective because I wanted um, the most objective possible. 
And if it was a Greek that was writing or painting, it would be Greek. If it was a Turkish Cypriot, it would be Turkish. At mm-hmm. least these ones, although they're influenced by the background quite often and quite a bit, still I believe they're more objective in their views and comments than the locals. Now, we, we begin the book actually in the 18th century. So that's the 1700s where, especially in Europe at the time, there's this thing called the Grand Tour, where in a sense, Europeans rediscovered antiquity. Can you mind telling us what exactly is this Grand Tour and why was Cyprus not necessarily on the itinerary for European travelers? The Grand Tour was a dream of every young gentleman that wanted to be seen and treated as a gentleman. It was learning the classical world and exploring the classical world. He was going abroad and coming back with uh, uh, knowledge and with experiences. Think, uh, Remember the society of the dilettante, etc. And these young men uh, would go off to see the classical world basically. That meant Italy, Greece, and from there on, uh, Turkey, uh, um, Egypt, and the Holy Land. Cyprus was never part of the Grand Tour. Why? Well, Cyprus was small. And the Grand Tour meant uh, visible monuments. Greece had the Parthenon. Rome had the Colosseum. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turkey had St. Sophia Um, Egypt had the pyramids what did Cyprus have at the time Uh, even in the the early 19th century Ludwig Ross writes that Salamis was a heap of rubble there was nothing that was excavated very very little was here in Cyprus and Cyprus was a god forsaken uh, uh, province of the Ottoman Empire. Nobody would visit. And yet, some people did come. But not because they really wanted to come and see Cyprus in the 18th century. No. It was because either there were storms or bad weather and their ships were led to Larnaca port or to Limassol port. Or because the ships had to stop to replenish food and water at our uh, ports on the way to the Holy Land or Egypt, or on the way back, or because they had to change ships sometimes. Mm-hmm. The ship would bring them from Egypt of the Holy Land to Larnaca, and from there they had to change ship and to carry on back to Europe, or vice versa. And this gave them a chance to see Cyprus for a short while. Uh, we don't have many people that ventured into the inland, the hinterland, they basically stayed around the coast and didn't stay long, very little. Yeah. Now, when these travelers arrived in the 18th and 19th century, were they in any way interested in Ottoman or Greek uh, contemporary culture, or was engagement with the locals simply done as a necessity? Uh, and I and I say that because uh, a lot of the the journals that I've read from this time, the descriptions of the men and the women is, is quite yes. derogatory. Yes. Well, actually, um, still for Cyprus until about the middle of the nineteenth century, Cyprus meant Greek culture for them basically. 
Uh, don't forget the myth with Aphrodite, yes? Mm-hmm, right. uh, the classical, uh, the, the Greek mythology, the classical world. Uh, so they were basically interested in Greek contemporary culture, uh, but they didn't find that much. Uh, they were surprised because there were all sorts of different, other different uh, cultures like French. The monuments, the Lusignan monuments are castles, etc., uh, surprised them. They found other things instead. Now, no, they did not. They kept their distance from the from the locals. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, they didn't stay long enough to make a point of getting to know the the, the locals. Secondly, they felt that we were quite uncivilized. Mm-hmm. The people that came were people that were interested in antiquities, that were uh, scientists or maybe uh, ex- explorers. They felt that the Cypriots were uncivilized, basically. And what did they see? They saw dark people, uh, um, people sitting at the cafes and the labor force being basically made up of women. Nobody stopped to think that, you know, the darkness is because of the sun. The women were not good-looking because they were working from morning till time, doing hard labor in the fields, even giving birth in the fields sometimes, <laughs> picking up the child and coming back home. Uh, I, I, know the, I know the reference that you're making. I think it was... Um... <laughs> Esme. Uh, Esme Scott Stevenson, yes. That's right. I think she's writes, the one who made that reference, right? Yes, she writes a lot about the women in Cyprus. Um, so these men, uh, and, I mean, then we have Drummond. Drummond is quite derogatory about the men. He said he loves the country. He says if the men were not so idle, if the men would work, then it could, this could be a paradise. Now, this has been told by many. <laughs> but let's you know, we have to think about the situation and take that into account. The Cypriots were under conquest for so many years, centuries. Yes, the Ottomans didn't particularly like Cyprus and care for Cyprus in the 18th century. Uh, the Pasha wanted his money to make money. He ordered the church to collect it and decide who to tax and who not to tax and how much, etc. As long as he got his money, he didn't care about anything else. They they didn't invest in the island. So people were sort of living day by day and had nothing to look forward to. Uh, There's also something else. They would always be very careful not to expose themselves to the eyes of the Ottomans as having a good life. They were always dressed very simple, poorly, as their archbishop taught them. Keep your clothes, uh, keep your clothes dark. Keep your head down. Do not provoke the Ottomans. The houses were looking dilapidated uh, from the outside so as not to attract the Ottomans. Inside, they were lovely. Mm -hmm. But And they had maybe quite a few amenities, but it wouldn't show. They wouldn't show this. Speaking of of staying inconspicuous amongst the Ottomans, one of the most famous travelers in the the earliest period uh, in your book is Basil Barsky. Now, he was Russian, um, and the Ottoman Empire and Russia were at war at the time. 
but he he went out of his way to make a pilgrimage to Cyprus. Now, how how do Barsky's travels differ from someone like Alexander Drummond, like you mentioned, who also visited Cyprus in the 18th century? It seems that there's a little bit of a religious versus secular. Um, uh, he's unique. Barsky's unique in what he did. First of all, he walked the whole of Cyprus. He didn't use mm-hmm. mules or anything. He walked uh, from one place to the other. He came to Cyprus because he wanted to study orthodoxy. He wanted to study, to see, uh, and live within the orthodox world and to see the monasteries of Cyprus, which he did. And he uh, drew quite a few of them and wrote about all of them. He wasn't very much interested in the cities or it was basically in orthodoxy. After all, the Russians at the time felt that they were the protectors of the orthodox world mm-hmm. in the Ottoman Empire. They were they they, they were in, they, the the Ottomans didn't want the Russians at the time. Their credentials uh, were not recognized in many parts of the Ottoman Empire, and quite often they had to travel in disguise. Right. And yet the Russians wanted uh, to play the role of the protector. So this is why Barsky comes to Cyprus. He comes really drawn by orthodoxy and our monasteries. And he describes them quite well. He draws them in a very amateur way because he was no artist, almost childish way. But it's quite interesting because if you look at the little details, you notice that he was very perceptive. Uh, and I'm going to, for those of you who are listening right now, a lot of the paintings that we refer to, I do have an Instagram page and I'll make sure that I'll uh, put up some of these paintings so that you have some context when when listening to this um, interview. We are going to talk now about John Skip, just very briefly. Also, uh, I believe Cassis Cassas. drew something. Cassas. Okay. So he, he, he drew something very similar as well. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Uh, Skip, he drew uh, Bafos, uh, the coast, and Casas, he, he drew the uh, monastery of Belapais. And in both of these, we see, well, for one, in, in the Bafos representation, we have a temple, the temple of Aphrodite, presumably, uh, which there is no temple looking the way it does in that painting. And in Casas' painting of Belapais, we see we, we see Greeks in classical attire. What shapes these depictions? Um, like, how, how do you interpret their paintings and what they're trying to portray? The fact that those well, don't actually exist in Cyprus. Well, actually, um, what John Skip does is he portrays the castle of Saranda Colones in Paphos. Okay. Which was there. And he was being just uh, very illustrative, very representative. Very liberal with saw. his painting there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what he saw, he tried to paint. With Cassas, the matter is different. Uh, Louis-François Cassas uh, came to Cyprus influenced by his patron, who was ambassador to the port, to Constantinople, French ambassador to the port, Choisel uh, Couffier. Now, Choisel Couffier wanted to make a book about the antiquities and about the important monuments of the near, of the um, near East. So he sent Casas around 
to paint, to collect uh, drawings of this. Um, Choisel Couffier, influenced by the Enlightenment, etc., was uh, a philalite, a great philalite, to the point where Sir Robert Ainsley, the then ambassador to the port, British ambassador to the port, whispered in the Sultan's ear that Choisel Gouffier had published a book on Greece just to make him, uh, to bring him in a difficult position. There was an antagonism, of course, between England and France at the time. Who was going to take what from the fastest integrating Ottoman Empire? So they were accusing each other. But anyway, Choisel uh, Gouffier was a philalite. And these feelings he passed on to his artist. Now, Casas comes to Cyprus and he knows that he's in an Ottoman province, but he also knows that this province is Christian, it's Greek. And of course, very carefully, very discreetly, he tries to show this, I believe, to show this through his art. So he dresses two women in chlamydia, in the Greek classical costume, walking up to Pelopais Abbey. We're in the 18th century. Can you imagine two women walking alone in the no. forest? <laughs> no, Certainly absolutely not. not. Uh, could you imagine these women dressed with chlamydia? Certainly not. He's making a point here. He's mm-hmm. saying that this, this island is Greek and this island belongs to the West because why does he choose to portray Pelabaisabe, which is a totally worse Western edifice? And well, perhaps well. the glory of the past. I give one interpretation like that, that uh, these women are walking up to Bellabais, up to the glory of the past, which mm-hmm. in this case is the French past of Cyprus, the Christian Lusignan western part of Cyprus. So there's a lot so of symbolism in the painting. It's there not is just... a lot of symbolism, and you see how um, their background influences what they do, what right. they present, uh, and what they choose to present. I think Cassas probably came to Cyprus and believed that he was going to see mosques and mm-hmm. caravanserais and Ottoman militia, and instead he sees the large door de France the golden age of France. And of course, he identifies with it. And he paints it. He presents it. And along with this, he presents the western side of the island, the Christianity of the island. And this is this is this differs a little bit from the British perspective on the island. Which was very, very plain, very conservative. This is what I see, yeah. this is what I present. Yeah. Uh, you, you alluded to this earlier. There's a little bit of a dichotomy here, and I'm going to read a quote from your book. You write, and I quote, travelers commented on the effects the Turks had on all aspects of life, condemning it just as they condemned the ignorance, degeneration, and subservience of the Greeks. End quote. Can you speak to this dichotomy of recognizing the plights of Cypriots, like sympathizing with them, but, they, but then condemning them in the same breath? That I found really peculiar. Yes, they sympathize them. Bec- they sympathize with them because they're ignorant, because they're subject to the Ottomans, because 
they've known no better for so long. But they condemn them because there is inertia within them. They do nothing about it. They, they just sit and accept their fate, both Greeks and Turks. And this is what they can't understand. Even in the early 19th century, uh, when the first American uh, missionary came to Cyprus and lived here for five years, Lorenzo Warriner Peace, came and studied the Cypriots, this is one of the greatest points he made, that the Cypriots never stand up for themselves, never lift their heads. Um, there is sort of a subservient attitude and a lot of inertia within them. I Just a parenthesis. Uh, if what happened to Cyprus in 2013, the haircut, happened in any other country, people would be rioting in the streets and putting fire in the, in, uh, to the bags. The Cypriots did nothing. They mm -hmm. bent their head down, they stayed home, and they cried over spilled milk. Mm -hmm. It's within us, I'm afraid. Maybe I like to see it as a, maybe it's a little bit of the British stiff upper lip, maybe. You know, uh, uh, if, uh, if we can say, I mean, I, I'm trying to see a, a hot a good glass. aspect to this, but I'm afraid <laughs> it's going to be very hard to say to to support that. Yeah, <laughs> can't um, always blame the others. Now, uh, before I, I'm, I was going to ask about the 19th century, but before we do that, I just wanted to make sure we 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 explore this a little bit. Who exactly are the audiences for many of these pieces? And I mean, this could be in this in the 18th and 19th centuries. And, and a similar um, question is, um, again, before we move on, uh, what were some of the challenges to travel and painting? For example, I think none, uh, especially in the 18th century, none are done on canvas. Um, Correct. So, um, again, yeah, who are the audiences and um, what are some of the, travel, uh, the challenges in painting and traveling? I'll start the other way. Uh, the challenges were, was the heat of the sun. The fact that they couldn't stay long to finish an oil painting. They were here for very short periods. The fact that they couldn't work under the uh, hot sun of Cyprus. The fact that they didn't have help. Uh, they didn't trust much the locals uh, to travel in, uh, in inland and see many places and choose, etc. They had to be doing things fast. Uh, so they did watercolors. We don't have any oils, but um, they, many of them used these watercolors when they went back home in their studios and made made oils out of them. Like, for example, Herman Solomon Korodi, who did uh, a quick uh, um, watercolor and then he did an oil. Uh, or Hendenburg, the same. Uh, quite a few of them. Um, Keith Henderson, quite a few of them would do watercolors, go back home to their studios and turn them into oils. They would take all the particulars, all the points of view, etc., and then work on them. Now, who was their audience? Who, was, who were the viewers? The people back home. Certainly not the Cypriots. Cypriots didn't care about paintings. They didn't even know about paintings. There were no paintings on the walls until 
after the 1930s, I would say. But their audience was the people were the people back home where they gave uh, they made um, exhibitions, and also quite a few of them were sent over specially by the government to put at the end of the 19th century, I'm talking about now, uh, to portray the new acquisition, the new island. So they would go back home and show this new island to, the, to their people and mm-hmm. talk about it. But basically, it, what they wanted to go back home and show through their art their experiences, the knowledge they had gained, the places they had visited, they felt that they deserved recognition for going that far away and uh, giving so much of themselves. Right. In the 19th century, we see a huge influx of travelers to Cyprus. Now, why the sudden boom? Because suddenly traveling was easier. We have the, the steamships. We It's much easier. We have an influx of people going to the Holy Land, the evangelical groups, and they stop uh, for a while in Cyprus. Uh, more people can afford uh, to travel. More people decide to leave, go and live abroad and make white man's colonies in various um, countries. So... There is, there is more tourism, more people coming to Cyprus as well, and especially at the end of the 19th century when we have the British. Now, you mentioned yeah, but, that a lot. But also in the middle of the 19th century because then we have also the interest in archaeology. Mm-hmm, right. So we have the antiquarians coming through. And there are a lot of them that are going, apart from the Greece, Italy, etc., the usual Grand Tour, they go... Uh, deeper uh, into the Middle East, and they stop inside to to Cyprus as well. Yeah, a lot of the art that we have, uh, a lot of the representations. I mean, I, I wouldn't say a lot, but we we do have um, a significant number of representations, at least of antiquities from the famous, infamous, I should say, Chesnola um, from this yes. period and his brother. Who, I mean, we wouldn't say excavated, maybe looted. Is that a more apt term? Well, that's in inverted commas as well. (laughs) Because, yeah, of course, today it's loot. But then we were begging him, people were begging him to buy antiquities. Mm -hmm. They were selling them. People were working for him, digging up and giving him the antiquities. Different situations. Right. uh, Completely different situations which one has to uh, take into account. You mentioned that topographically, it's as if, and this is a quote again, it's as if they wanted to present a country that was topographically reminiscent of the West, but ethnographically reminiscent of the East. How was this done and and why was this done? Why would artists have wanted to do both of these things? Well, if you think of our landscape, uh, of of our cities, of our villages, they didn't have much, um, um, uh, uh, Eastern elements, uh, Ottoman elements. There wasn't much. The Ottomans came and, okay, took some Latin churches and put minarets on them, etc. Built one or two hands or one or two uh, 
turned buildings into uh, baths. But um, basically, the country was full of monuments of Christianity and of the West. Think of our castles up on the mountains and on the shores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These were not Turkish. These were Lusignan. Uh, think of a church in every village or churches. There was Greekness and Christianity all over the island, more so than Ottoman or Islam. But ethnographically, our clothes were very much influenced by the East. We were dressed just like the Ottomans were dressed. The only way to distinguish a Greek from a Turk was by the colors they wore. The Ottomans uh, were lighter colors, being the ruling class for 300 years. And they used two colors that were not allowed to the Christians. The color yellow, they wore especially yellow socks and especially yellow slippers and boots, and the color green, which was the holy color of Islam. Whereas the Greeks kept to darker colors, just like their archbishop told them. Uh, they were uh, inconspicuous. They didn't want to, to stand out. Dark, black, vraka, pantaloon, black, gilet, dark color shirts, and of course, a black, uh, a black scarf around their uh, fez. Whereas mm-hmm. the, the Turks wore a white one, white mm-hmm. shirts, white fraka. But this was the only thing, the color. The rest were exactly the same. We were dressed exactly the same. And we both wore fez because there's this uh, uh, mistaken idea that, oh, the Greeks never wore the fez. Of course mm-hmm. we did. I would say we wore them more than, we wore it more than the uh, Turks because the Turks were used to the turban, to the uh, handkerchief wrapped around their head. And when Atatürk said, use the face, they they were reluctant to do it. But uh, finally they did, of course. But we did it immediately. And we wore the face until the 1912, 1915. Again, in the 19th century, we have draftsmen and architects, Edward Lanson and Sidney Lachey, um, who were commissioned to record monuments and publish their findings. Now, this is under the British period. Does artistic representation essentially become a tool of colonialism? Yes. Yes. They're sent to present the island, to show all the aspects of the island, because there is a reason for it. First of all, they want people, they want Brits to go to the island. They want to create a, a, a white man's uh, colonies. They want to people to go and invest. So art is used as a tool to attract people, show them the beauties of the island, show them how the island is, uh, how to intrigue them to going. So they send a lot of artists. Uh, and this intrigues not only people that are entrepreneurs and will start businesses, but also other people like scientists, like archaeologists, like uh, antiquarians, 
Because don't forget that after the second half of the 19th century, we have the museums. And the British want to fill their museums. So they want people to go to these places and excavate and find things. And they want people to go, scientists, to go and uh, uh, find, uh, uh, study the flora and the fauna of this and bring back interesting knowledge and information for their own benefits. Mm -hmm. So these new colonies have to be made known. Art is one way of doing it. There is, though, an orientalizing aspect to the way art is, uh, the way Cyprus is being portrayed in art in order to make it a little bit more attractive. Um, And in fact, I think you actually even mentioned that in some cases, uh, artists didn't even acknowledge European clothing. In in some cases, they really wanted to amplify the Easternness of Cyprus. So why why is this happening? And why is it, why is Cyprus fetishized in a sense in, in the 19th century as a, as very End oriental. Of the 19th century, we have Orientalism. And this is the idea of presenting uh, the exotic and the picturesque, something completely different, something new to the people of England, of France, of Germany, to back home. So the artists come here, and especially the British, especially the British, and orientalize the country at a time where Cyprus is much closer to the West than in any of those 300 years under Ottoman rule. Um, Why? Because it's different. People like the exotic and the picturesque, but there's also another reason for it. Because the British have to excuse, have to um, justify their presence in Cyprus. What the hell were they doing in this little island? Why did they want Cyprus? They have to, the Victorians have to justify their existence in Cyprus. And their justification is taking civilization to the back of beyond. So Cyprus has to appear as the back of beyond which in a few years' time, turn of the century, 1920s, 1930s, the British will re-illustrate and show their beneficial presence to the island and how they took civilization. Yeah, and that kind of leads us into the 20th century because Cyprus does become, funny enough, it becomes a favorite tourist destination. I'm not immediately in the, 19, the 1900s, but... Um, um, but of course... The same language, English was being spoken everywhere. The same currency, Mm -hmm. beautiful landscapes, mostly Christian, quite safe with the British uh, army, the British militia all around, ruled by Britain. What else did they want? You alluded to this in in your response just now. Nothing seems to have changed that much, though. But in the 20th century, it becomes a favorite tourist destination. What what has changed? I mean, that seems the same as it was in the past. But now, it, is it simply because we have the flag there, and, and that's what makes it a favorite tourist destination? Well, and if that's the case, how, how did they then promote Cyprus? How did they get people wanting to go to Cyprus? What sort of elements of the landscape did they use to... Yeah. Uh, to sell we it. have we have the flag, of course we have the flag, but we have present different presentations of 
people dressed in European clothing now, mm. of uh, um, buildings, colonial buildings, that remind one of the buildings back home, like mm-hmm. Government House, mm-hmm. like um, other uh, sort of colonial houses and uh, uh, all sorts of things. Um, we have road system, which the British... Uh, started and and made. Uh, we have they advertise a good civil service system, which we must admit these things were done uh, and were very beneficial to the island. The road system, the civil service. They got rid of malaria with the eucalyptus, etc. So um, uh, a healthier climate. All these are written down. Paintings. Uh, there are a lot of paintings of Trudeau's mountains, mm-hmm. beautiful forests, of uh, nice street scenes, of people dressed in uh, Victorian clothing nowadays, uh, even uh, in Art um, de Gaulle clothing. If you think of Gladys Pito and her paintings, her drawings, uh, very sort of fashionable dress. All these Slowly, slowly, this changes the picture of Cyprus. There is an aeroplane now. <laughs> 1949, we have uh, an aeroplane. Um, the, the beaches are being advertised immensely, uh, yeah. continuously. And then you have not only artists, but also writers writing about Cyprus. Uh, and writing about the beauties of the islands and how this meets West in Cyprus, etc. Lawrence Darrell and various others. So the picture changes slowly, slowly. You know, and photography also begins to replace the brush in this period, of course. right? And what of are their, course. What are some of their themes that, that comes out? I mean, I, I know and I, and I have John Thompson's work, which is it's an incredible... That's the early... Yes, where we are... Right, sorry. It is, it, is, it is admittedly still the uh, late 19th century. After, afterwards, uh, in the 20th century, we have a lot of pictures, photographs of the mountains, of, uh, funnily enough, the mines industry. Yeah, because they want to promote people to come here and invest. We have of the beaches and not so much of people, but of landscapes and of cityscapes photographs. I think it seems to me there's there's a real shift between how Cyprus is presented, at least through the British perspective, at the end of the 19th century and then in the early to mid 20th century. Yes. You know, we have like yes. an exotic and Oriental, and then now exactly. a new, more modern European image, exactly. right? Exactly, you got it. Exactly, exactly. Now we we want to join the. We, it has to join the Western world. Now it has to be a, a place where that will earn money for itself, and the want the British will not have to give money to Cyprus. Cyprus has to stand on its own, and uh, and it has to earn. It's living, so they're promoting in this as as a tribe, as a tourist destination, as a white man's colony destination, mm-hmm. as a. Uh, I mean, even at a point they were thinking of having a university in Cyprus. Should you believe it? 
<laughs> yeah, um, they want to make it stand on its own feet, and rather than take money, create an income from for the British. There's something that always fascinates me when discussing Cyprus, and <clears throat> it's always the concept of identity by Cypriot identity in particular. And in this period, or rather, do you can we tell when we have shifting self identities in in Cyprus, or is it represented in any way? Is it captured in any way through the art? When do Cypriots start? As many do, and they start they view themselves as European. So, do we know when this shift starts to occur, uh, and is it captured in any way through the art? Not quite sure if it's captured by the art, except for the architectural aspect of it, uh, because uh, that's a time where we have also the neoclassical architecture coming into the island. But it starts uh, with the, the turn of the century, the 20th century. I mean, when we're going into the 20th century, and when we don't have many teachers in Cyprus, right? We don't mm-hmm. have many educated people. Uh, mostly it's the priests that teach the youngsters in, in, uh, in the courtyard of the church or in a, a room or something like that. But uh, after the 1900, after the, in the 20th century, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, we have Greeks, Greek teachers from Greece coming over. And they're full of the idea of the great Elas, Megali Elas. Their idea of, you know, Asia Minor, etc., and how Greece reaches even Cyprus. And they implant this idea into the Cypriots. They implant it. They, They help them be Greeks. More Greeks are anything, and of course, uh, the, their stronger point is: you speak Greek, therefore you're Greek. You are Orthodox, therefore you're Greek. Uh, and they keep on working on this. The same thing, parallel, happens with the Turks from Turkey, with Turks from Turkey. When the Turk, the Turks see that there is this Greekness. Uh, uh, created on amongst the Greeks and rising, they get worried. And so they have, a bit later, they have the same thing. And this way, uh, we have two identities growing. Must say that Seronal stores in the 30s still wanted the Cypriot identity. He wanted to encourage the Cypriot identity for his own reasons, of course. He wanted loyalty to Britain, etc. Uh-huh. But um, the Greeks didn't agree. It was far gone. We were already Greeks and uh, we wouldn't accept any other identity. And this was obvious um, with the Pan-Cyprian exhibitions, etc., where they wouldn't participate because the Turks were there and the British were there, and we were Greeks. We didn't want it. And, of course, after many efforts to to create this Cypriot and, and to create and strengthen this Cypriot identity had failed, well, the British had to do something else. So they turned to the divide and rule. This was <laughs> the only way to keep above water. Mm-hmm. So... They used the one community, Greek community, the Greek identity, 
against the Turkish identity, Greeks against the Turks. You actually write that it was British policy in Cyprus to distance itself from Greece, and it extended to the mobilization and use of the artistic community. Yes, they how tried. Did they do that? Yeah, how, how, how was that accomplished? How, how did they set out to do that? They were artists? doing all these exhibitions and they wanted them to be of the locals and togetherness. Uh, the Greeks and the Turks together, the British as well, mm-hmm. as uh, the Cypriot nation, away from Greece, away from Turkey. But we wouldn't listen. We wanted to be Greeks. So that went astray. And we lost the, the, the chance of the Cypriot identity. Mm-hmm. Still, the question of the identity is on the table, even today. What are we? I say I'm a Cypriot, but there are a lot of people that say, yeah, no, I'm a Greek, or I'm a Greek Cypriot, or a Turkish Cypriot, or I'm a Turk. Mm-hmm. I am a Cypriot. That's what I want to be. Right. One country, one identity. Right. Um, it is um, it's, it's incredibly interesting how, how that, uh, that happened in the, in the 20th century. And I mean, I think Lawrence Durrell actually even says that this was a, a disgusting situation in Cyprus, entirely engineered by us. Yes, that you was know, a, few, a, a few weeks, a, a couple of months before he died. And uh, he, he, he gave a, an interview to a Greek. I think it was the Aegean Review. And he says he admits that all this was done by the British. And when it's obvious, uh, Lawrence Dallard loved Cyprus. Mm-hmm. He really liked the Greeks. But again, even then, he likes the Greeks, but he says they're not capable of ruling themselves. They're making a mess of their country. And uh, he's the head of the public information office that uh, produces this magazine called the Cyprus Review, which is another way of creating, bringing the sort of... Uh, propaganda for the British, having propaganda for the British propaganda. And in it, he consciously, at that point, we're talking about the 50s, not 45, 50s, uh, he consciously uh, separates the Greeks from the Turks. They're not Cypriots anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, In one um, cover of the Cyprus Review, you have a Turk smoking nagil. In another yeah. one, you have a Greek having a coffee or vice versa or something like that. Um, in one uh, issue, you have uh, articles about the Turks. In another issue, you have articles about the Greeks, about Greek monasteries, about mosques, about uh, Greek food, about Turkish food. Never together. Separate. And he writes to Freya Stark and uh, asks her, write to me, send me an article about the Turks or send me an article about the Greeks. And he asks uh, Rosemary Grimble and Jonathan Abrams, uh, who are artists living in Cyprus, today draw something which is Turkish, tomorrow draw something which is Greek. Never together. Rita, this was this was great. This was a, this was very uh, wonderful conversation. Those those listening, that book, uh, traveling artists in Cyprus, seventeen hundred 
1960. It is... Um, well, uh, if it, you liked it, and if you want to know more about Cyprus, then you better read The Diaries of Lorenzo Warner Peace, the first American missionary to the island. Can you tell me a little bit about it before we um, sign off? Well, he, he was the first American missionary that came to Cyprus, and he lived in Larnaca for five years. He had his children here, three children. He died in Cyprus, and two of his children died here. Um, and he loved the island, and every night he would sit and write his diary. And through his diary, you will learn all about Cyprus in the 19th century. And he traveled. He traveled all over the island and described every single village. You know, I learned about my island by uh, transcribing Lorenzo's uh, uh, manuscripts. Mm -hmm. I would do it all the week. And during the weekend, I would take my husband and family, we'd get into the car, and we used to follow his footsteps all over the island. And that's how I got to know Cyprus and loved it. That's amazing. He I would have loved to have been there. My <laughs> that sounds amazing. That's, that's... Ask, ask for it in any library. The Diaries of Lorenzo Warner Peace. And you will learn a lot about your island. I will. I will. It's, it's on mm -hmm. the agenda. Rita, again, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And um, it was really a pleasure. I will be in touch. I'll let you know when I'm able to have it uploaded. I hope you get a chance to actually check out some of the episodes that are there. I have a lot of interviews with colleagues of yours. I, I think, I think uh, one who's uh, on the board for the foundation. Uh, Dimitris. Uh, Dimitris. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. Very so, good friend. Again, it was so, such a pleasure. It was so nice to talk. And I'd like to thank you for hosting me today. Really, I enjoyed chat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great night uh, and a great rest of the week. And Bye. you. Thank you. Bye.